Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. About five months ago, I joined the Australian National University to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to raise awareness of the impact of tech policy on our everyday lives. This is episode three, and I'm delighted to introduce you to our guest, David Masters. David is Head of Global Policy and Regulatory Affairs at Atlassian, one of Australia's most successful tech companies. Prior to that, he worked at Microsoft for seven years. He's held roles in government as a lobbyist and including four years as an advisor to the Minister for Communications. I think it's safe to say, David, that you're one of Australia's tech policy veterans. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Joanna. It's a pleasure to be here. So we usually start the podcast by asking a question that isn't related to tech policy, but yep. largely because it's, um, I find it to be a very interesting conversation of what was your first interaction with technology or perhaps more specifically with the internet? All right. So technology, uh, I remember when I was at primary school, we had one Apple computer for the whole school. Awesome. Um, so I think there was... So you would go as a, as a group of two to go and collect the monitor and the CPU and the, and, and the keyboard, which is all sort of in one case, and then drag it up to the next classroom, use it for an hour. I think it was an Apple IIe, I think, from recollection. Nice. Um, I had an Amstrad PC-20, which was a terrible computer. It was my first computer. Um, I think actually, funny enough, it was actually the same computer that Mike Cannon-Brooks had as his first computer, oh, randomly. It was fated. It, it was fate. fated. It was meant to be. Um, didn't have a hard drive, so you had to load everything off disk and uh, it had terrible like CGA graphics. But my first interaction with the internet, which is actually a really good demonstration of how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. When I was uh, at school, and I, I grew up in sort of uh, rural New South Wales, so Hay. Mm. And uh, my first experience was using uh, the internet at Hay via dial-up modem, and it was an STD call because the nearest point of presence was in Griffith. Oh wow! Which was so expensive. Which was 150 kilometres away, and so the, you'd have the teacher sort of watching the clock because you know obviously yeah. you were you were getting charged the higher STD rates, which actually I think government fixed there was a policy in 1999 to make sure every internet call was a local call but that's how far we've come in in yeah. policy and in in, uh, in the design of uh, you know the technology environment in Australia amazing and uh, bonus points for linking in tech policy to that question well done go. well done and so the other question that we we open with is asking people about why you think tech policy is important and I think for me um, when I you know you're sitting around the dinner table and people ask you what what you do and I say I work in tech policy there's a sort of instant glaze that comes over people's eyes and they back away from you kind of with their arms crossed when I tell people what I actually do on a day-to-day -day basis they get really interested but the initial reaction is often I don't want to know anymore stop talking you're going to be incredibly boring <laughs> so what's your elevator pitch or, or why do you think that our listeners should be caring about tech policy well, hopefully I do a better job than my children. I think my, <laughs> my son convinced all of his classmates that I worked on Xbox when I was at Microsoft. 
um, <laughs> which made me sound a lot cooler than, than working on tech policy. But I think it's the combination of the newness, mm. the complexity and just the ubiquity of technology. Yeah. So I think um, from a newness perspective, I'm, a lot of the regulatory approaches, a lot of the, the policy issues, are they're, they're new. Um, mm. And often you find a government is trying to tackle an issue that no one else anywhere in the world has tackled before. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's quite interesting just from an intellectual engagement perspective to, to engage in issues that are, you know, no one's really had to sort of work through before. Um, the complexity because, you know, technology is actually really complex. It's, it's difficult to understand unless you operate in it. And I think um, the great thing about our sort of roles is they're really sort of that translation role yeah. between technologists, policymakers, legislators. Um, so really that trying to understand that complexity and then put it in terms that can be understood by those stakeholders, I think is a really, again, really interesting thing to, to work on. And finally, it's just the technology is everywhere. It's all, it's part of our lives. Um, it's embedded in our work, in our day-to-day um, engagements. It's created some, some amazing opportunities, improved productivity, improved our connectedness, um, allow, allowed us to work effectively through a pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's done some incredibly positive things. It's also amplified, you know, some of the worst points of human nature. So, so I think, you know, that, that combination of, of, you know, the fact that it's really new and it's, it's emerging, it's complex and, and uh, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And that um, reminds me of something. So when I was working in government, the pitch that I always made to people was so many areas when you're working in government, you're implementing or or trying to fix bad old existing policy, whereas this is an area where you're actually making new policy. And that really is quite an exciting, but also challenging environment to be working in. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of us who operate in and around the tech industry, Atlassian is, you know, held up as an absolute golden star um, success story. But if we interviewed the average person on the street and asked them, you know, for example, who West Farmers, ANZ and Telstra were, I think you'd be able to get pretty clear answers of who they are and what they did in a way that we might not perhaps be able to do quite for Atlassian. And, you know, in some ways that's understandable because Atlassian is comparatively much newer. Um, But I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Atlassian's market capitalization is more than any of the three companies that I just mentioned, for example. So um, perhaps for our listeners, can you talk us through a little bit of the origin story of Atlassian and what it is that you actually do? Sure. So the origin story is quite an interesting one. Um, Mike and Scott actually met at university. Yeah. Um, so it's very appropriate. They're the with... founders of Atlassian. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, so the founders of Atlassian, Mike and Scott, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, met dur- during the same course at University of New South Wales. So they were both doing a computer science degree. Uh, it was a course that had a vocational component to it. So they were out working during breaks at large enterprises. I think both of them figured out through that process they didn't really want to work in corporate environments. <laughs> um <laughs> And really what happened, Mike actually founded a company, kind of pretty much dropped out, founded a company, um, you know, ran that for, for you know, a bit over a year and then realized that wasn't going to work out, sold the IP and then essentially actually emailed every one of his classmates saying, I'm setting up this new company called Atlassian, who wants to join me? And the person who responded to him was Scott Farquhar and that's the beginning of Atlassian. Really, they didn't have grand ambitions to begin with. They they essentially wanted to make the same amount of money per annum that a grad would make from their course, which was about 48000 Yep. per annum. Um, so they've done they've a fair bit better than that. They've somewhat exceeded that, yes. <laughs> um, 
and and the original business model was actually supporting a third party software. So. Mm. Um, they were supporting, I think it was a Swedish company. It was like an application server, I think, but it had terrible documentation. So they, they set up this company that was going to support this third-party piece of software. So they would get calls at like one o'clock in the morning from a European customer. And they had a terrible business model where it was like, we, we won't charge you unless we solve your issue for you. So they only got the hardest issues. Uh, and I think they had a flat rate of like $500 per issue. So I think they worked out fairly quickly. That wasn't a long-term business strategy. Um, but they did build some tools to help that business. Mm. One of them was a bug tracking piece of software, mm-hmm. which is which is what became Jira, yeah. uh, which is our core flagship product. And and it started as a as a bug tracker for you know software developments, and it's now morphed into a quite a you know um, a multi use sort of project management piece of software. So we we sort of work in that space where we allow we enable teams to collaborate, to work together, to run projects, to get stuff done. Basically, mm. is, is the the core of our business very much started and very still very strong in the software development sector um, but increasingly we're used across complex manufacturing um, you know for example uh, you know SpaceX and NASA use Jira to run their projects we find that we're used in finance and HR as well so yeah. that's sort of grown out we have a couple other products that also allow for collaboration so Confluence which is a sort of a internal wiki um, yeah. so uh, document collaboration, uh, information collaboration, Trello, which some people might be familiar with, which is a, a project manage- visualization or, or project management uh, a tool, a very visual tool, um, where and it aligns very closely with agile software development methodologies. Yeah. The, the interesting innovation of Atlassian in those early days was that we were one of the first companies to use the shareware model mm-hmm. um, for software in the enterprise market. So um, shareware had operated quite effectively in gaming. So you could play the first level and then you had to pay more to unlock the next level. So I don't know if anyone remembers playing Doom, but that was the Doom business model. <laughs> and so they took that to, to the enterprise software yeah. version. So very easy to get started using the software and that's remained our core philosophy. It's very easy to, to get a team to start working on our products mm. and then use that to grow inside the organisation and to grow into other teams. Mm. The way Atlassian's products have been described to me by those who work in the industry is that many of Atlassian's products underpin the operations of every other tech company that exists, uh, which is interesting that that's, that's coming from, you know, an Australian yeah. uh, a tech startup and, and the role that it is then playing um, for lots of other operations globally. So I heard Scott describe it is we sell the picks and shovels of the digital gold rush. So, ah, I like it. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And so Atlassian is obviously an Australian company. Um, you do have a big US presence. Are there any particular challenges and opportunities of being an Australian tech company operating in a global environment? Yeah, I think it, we bring a unique perspective. I think there was a combination early on in the early days of Atlassian's history because they were outside of America. It was largely bootstrapped. There wasn't any venture capital in the in the company until 2010, so about eight years in, mm. into its life. Also, being in Australia and not being connected to the sort of Silicon Valley network, mm. they had to be online to, to begin with. That was the, the whole sales operation all ran through the website. Um, and I think they... Um, they took approach of, of looking as big as they possibly could. So, you know, um, 
uh, Mike and Scott have spoken about how if you went onto the website, there was a sales number and there was a, a marketing number and there was a support number and it was still going through to two guys. <laughs> all going back to their mobile <laughs> phone number. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and to, to different email addresses that all routed to, yeah. to their email addresses. But they had to they had to think big from, from day one and, and they've had a very external focus. I think they also recognise that Australia is a very small market mm. and so they were very um, – export focused very internationally focused i think of the first 10 customers they had none of them were australian mm. um you know so i think that 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 really just created a mindset of you know thinking about the world from day one not necessarily being too fixated on a domestic market which is important i think also that that australianness is still very much in our culture you know there's an openness there's an honesty a humility i think which 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 is yeah. sort of sort of natural to australians you know we don't overpromise um, I think there's there's a very strong American culture where it's like you know if, if something's half baked, get out there and start selling it as hard as you possibly can, and that doesn't come naturally to Australians, or <laughs> it is, it's not it's not doesn't sit comfortably with with Australians. So, you know, I think there's there's very much that Australianness still within the company. Yeah, yeah. awesome. I'm just going to ask um, Anna: Is that bird going tweet 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 in the background going to be? Um... <laughs> <laughs> We are in uh, the bush capital. Yes, we are in the bush capital. So we're recording this sitting outside um, at the uh, university because uh, we're currently uh, mid Omicron wave and um, and so can't use the studio. So um, we hope you're enjoying the bird noise in the background. So I, I hope that story helps inspire some of our listeners because I know you know for example the vice chancellor here Brian Smith is really keen. You know he's he is always talking about what is the unicorn that is going to emerge from this university Um, and you know I think uh, to hear the story of how Atlassian emerged um, from a university environment um, from UNSW it's really it's really exciting and I hope inspiring for people to hear that and the fact that we can have Australian companies doing this you know that we talk so often about tyranny of distance and when you're talking about online environments you don't have that right we have so much advantage here in Australia with our intellectual capital and and you know we're not talking about exporting stuff and shipping it and having huge amounts of costs. So yep. you can see why this is something that that should be and rightly is part of Australia's future. So one of the reasons that I was really excited to have you uh, on the show, David, is because one of the first projects that we're working on at the Tech Policy Design Centre is working with government departments, also working with tech industry, and um, to develop and hopefully get everyone to agree to a common set of tech policy design principles and also also um, best practice tech policy design process. And as part of that, we've done a lot of research in terms of what policy and principles already exist out there in the world. And we came across as part of that research Atlassian's principles for sound tech policy, um, which I understand you drafted with Anna and a few others in your team just after you started at Atlassian. So would you be able to perhaps introduce those principles, but before you do also talk about why you felt it was important to develop and make publicly available the principles because, uh, you know, I think it's one thing to develop them, it's another to put them on your website and yeah. stand behind them. Yeah, look, I'm a really big supporter of the no surprises mentality, which is if, if you're engaging with government on policy issues, engaging on regulatory issues, it's really helpful that everybody knows where they stand. And, and so having um, a set of principles you know, kind of our statement of intent of how we're going to, going to engage with those those processes going forward is, is really important. 
It's also a really useful internal mechanism to think about things as they're coming at you. I think given the rate of you know, technology policy proposals and regulatory um, uh, considerations, legislative proposals, it, you know, you've got to have a framework where you can look at something and say, all right, how do we how do we think about that and and do we like it do we not like it and why mm. and, and i think you know particularly in the technology industry because we've been largely unregulated for, for such a long time the natural gut reaction is that all regulation is bad and and i think if you if you don't have a way of articulating why it might be bad well you, you're gonna you know i think government's just going to react fairly badly to that because you, you just go and um you're saying well you would say that you're the tech industry you hate regulation on principle so that was really the sort of the driving um mechanism behind it it's something i've you know encountered in in previous lives i mean microsoft for example had a number of principles around government access and, and a whole range of other things. We're also involved uh, with Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Cisco, IBM, Salesforce and Slack in um, what have been put out as the trusted cloud principles as well. They're just a really useful mechanism for engaging with governments. Yeah. In summary, the eight principles that we, we laid out were, one, define the playing field, which is really about the policy should have clear objectives and, and should be stated. Two, engage with the issue, don't dumb it down. It's really, it's complex, but you have to engage yeah. with the complexity. Yeah. Like you just have to accept that it's complex. You can't dumb it down. Three, which is treat the ailment, don't kill the patient. That the, the policy should be proportionate, that it should always to seek, seek to minimise unintended consequences because of that complexity, because we're moving into new areas. There's a lot of things we don't know um, or a lot of things that policymakers don't know. And I think it's really important to try and unpack that early on, mm -hmm. think that through and listen to stakeholders if they do raise those issues. Four, consult early, consult often. So <laughs> pretty self-explanatory. Um, open consultative processes are always the, the way to go. Let the light in is number five, that there should be transparency in government decision-making, that, that people should be able to see why government came to that decision, the process and by which they came to that decision, and then there should be meaningful uh, mechanisms by which industry and other stakeholders can challenge those decisions or at least um, engage with the, the, the process by mm. which those decisions were made. Number six is address behaviour, don't punish success. So that really is about addressing behaviours across the sector and driving outcomes on a systemic basis and not focusing on one particular company's behaviour and drafting things around that. Because, you know, as we've seen with technology, companies come and go, their dominance changes. So if you're too focused on the individual organisation itself, you're, you're kind of missing the bigger picture and the behaviour that you're trying to address uh, through, the, through the response. Tech and trust is global is number seven, which is really acknowledging that the internet is a global um, system and that where possible, we should continue to foster interoperability across regulatory environments so that we don't add additional complexity in how that operates and add kind of uh, inefficiencies into the system where possible. And number eight is build the foundation for shared, shared success, which is that we should have a consistent and reliable framework for business and investment to occur. Hmm. So what I'd like to do um, is dive down in on a few of those principles yep. in particular. And I, you know, it is hard to choose because they are all interdependent. Um, and what I particularly like about the way that you've crafted these principles is that you 
put a question that needs to be answered up front and then you state the principle. So, for example, with, with principle two, it, you say, do you have a clear understanding of the technology? You have a paragraph that sort of explains what you mean by yep. that. And then you get to um, the actual principle, which is engage with the issue. And I think it's just a really interesting, but also, um, as you say, when you're looking at a set of policies that are coming through, you're not just applying a principle, but you are answering a question. Yep. Um, and I can really see um, the utility of that. So if we take principle two, for example, this mm -hmm. engage with the issue, this is something that we've spoken about before on the podcast in terms of, you know, do we actually have a clear understanding of what the technology is? And I'm going to read here the, the text that you have drafted for that principle because I think it articulates the challenge that I have spoken about before very well. And so this is a reading from uh, the principle two. We know that technology has a steep learning curve and that many lawmakers and regulators aren't technical experts, but engagement with techni technical experts, whether independent or members of industry, is key to understanding the technology being regulated and to formulating reasonable and effective laws. So that's, that's your paragraph and yep. I want to make it clear that next statement is me because I'm going to say that in my, in my view, a lot of the lousy tech policy or re regulation, um, take your pick, um, that we have results from either the policymakers or the politicians not understanding the full implications of the technology and the way that that technology impacts. So they tend to focus on one particular viewpoint and then they don't, yet, don't necessarily have visibility of the other impacts. So one of the key things we're looking at at the Tech Policy Design Centre is how do we actually lift that level of understanding quickly because, you know, regulation is happening quickly. Yeah. So I'm really interested in your thoughts. When I put this question to the minister in our first episode, his response was, well, that's tech, the tech industry's problem. Um, and actually the tech industry should be the ones helping to upskill everyone. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to see what you think about that. Look, he's, he's not wrong. I mean, I think I think there is a degree of responsibility on our side to to help inform the debate, but there also has to be a receptiveness on that side of the debate mm. for that conversation to happen. So I, I think, and this is one of the reasons why you know I'm a big supporter of what you're doing, Jonah, is is you've got to create spaces where people can ask questions and also be vulnerable enough to be open about their knowledge gaps. Yeah, industry. You know, we're talking about our responsibility. We have to come to the table with a mindset of wanting to share knowledge, but also trying to learn from government. So, you know, have some empathy for the position that government's in and what they're trying to achieve. And and that's where you start to have a, a much richer dialogue because everyone is being a little bit more open, a little bit more vulnerable. No one is trying to, you know, sort of use the knowledge gap to their advantage in that conversation. I think, you know, when you have that information asymmetry, it, you know, you, you can get into a point of each side lecturing the other one yeah. and no one meeting in the middle. So I think those spaces outside of the cut and thrust of a proposal that's on the table are really important because once you've got a policy proposal, you've got a government that's often already made a decision or is halfway to making a decision, has a, has a statement of intent of where they're going to go. Has released the media release. Has released a media <laughs> release. Um, has done a doorstop on the issue. And, and really at that point, government becomes quite defensive. Um, mm -hmm. So if industry comes to the table and says, look, this has a lot of hairs on it. You need to think it through. It could, could have a whole range of unintended consequences. Well, then the government's already kind of locked into a position. It's very, very hard to, to move from, from that. 
um, particularly if there's already a fair degree of detail on, on the table. I think the, the, the other thing is that, that, you know, we've got to find forums where, you know, we can actually, you know, sort of show uh, government technology and actually get them to engage with it. I think one of the challenges I've found is that if you, you go to the average department here in Canberra, the technology they're using day to day probably doesn't reflect the technology that's being used by the rest of the economy. One of the best things about leaving the public service is I can now use all of these wonderful pieces of technology that I wasn't able to use. So I definitely agree with that. Yes. And look, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's good security reasons for it all, but also, and sometimes security is is, is also just used as a blocker for not doing things. So, so I think that's, I mean, and that's, uh, you know, one thing I found, um, you know, recent engagement with Oz industry and the tax office around the R and D tax incentive yep. and how that's used for software. I, I think if your experience of software is that your IT department deploys the next version of whatever it is every four years, well, you sort of, it's pretty natural that you would assume that that's how software is being developed, you yep. know, by software companies and, and the truth is we've all moved to cloud services. The product just evolves pretty rapidly over time. New features and functionality are added pretty consistently. And, and you know, those businesses that have, and organizations that have moved to those technologies have that rapid evolution and they see that and they understand it. So, you know, some way we've got to find the ability, you know, create a, a mechanism where government can engage with the technology. It's really, really hard to understand something if you're not engaging with it. Mm. Mm. Um, I think that that will probably, you know, that's probably changing as the demographic shift and you have more digital natives, uh, you know, come into governments who are obviously using, you know, more digital technologies in their home life. But I think also that does create a skew, which is more around understanding B2C business models, yeah. less B2B business models. So there's, there's a yeah. few complexities in that. Um, but again, I, I think it all comes back to just creating spaces where you can share knowledge and people can be open um, can be honest about where they're at and, and try and learn. Mm. And I think that the difference between um, B2B and B2C, so business to business versus business to consumer business models, is one that we don't and haven't had a lot of conversation on within government, right? There's this perception that actually technology is about industry delivering um, technology to consumers when actually, especially for a company like yeah. Atlassian, your consumers are actually businesses. That's right. And so that has big implications for the way that you design policy and the way that you design regulation, but also big consequences for regulation that is designed with B2C in mind because it's actually not necessarily fit for purpose, but it is being applied. Yeah, and we, we see that often in, in legislation where the, it's drafted to capture a technology. Yes, and so once it captures that technology, it, it's capturing both, you know, as you say, business consumer, but also business to business um, models because they operate on similar platforms. And the challenge often the government has is with B2C models because they're worried about consumer behaviours, they're worried about businesses' um, use of, of consumer data for the like. But on the, on the business side of the fence, and the data one is a really important one, generally there's a, if you look at B2C business models, often the technology is free or it's low cost because mm. there's sort of a data exchange that occurs between the individual and, and the business. In the B2B model, it's generally the, the, the assumption from day one is that the business itself owns the data and they use your platform to manage it or to, to process it or, or what have you. And if government drafts things in a way that captures everyone, 
Well, it actually creates challenges between those customers of B2B models because they're like, well, how can I trust you to manage my data if the government has these powers that mm. might control it? So mm. that, that's, a, that's a point of tension yeah. in the system. Absolutely. And um, just, just to be clear as well, I'm not saying that B2B doesn't also require no, regulation, agree. just that it is um, <laughs> perhaps um, a, a different type and, and nuances there. So let's have a look at principle three as well. And, and I think this actually goes very much to this point that we're just discussing. And so this principle, the question uh, that it that is asked at the start of this principle is, does this measure use proportionate means and minimise unintended consequences? And the principle itself is treat the ailment, don't treat the patient. You have a great, um, you end the paragraph about this principle by saying regulation should be used as a scalpel, not as a sledgehammer. And this is something that I have often, uh, a phrase I've often used. I think for, for most of us involved in this industry, we can think of various different sledgehammer models that have been yep. used. So my question for you is, can you give examples of the sledgehammer? But I'm actually much more interested in, can you also give examples of where a scalpel has been used yep. and speak a little bit about the benefits that flow from the scalpel versus the sledgehammer? Because, you know, it's not just about a blame game. It's about saying there is a benefit to using the scalpel. Yeah, look, the scalpel, I'm going, to, I'm going to draw on an experience that I had early on in my career. I worked on the Spam Act 2003, okay. um, which is still in operation today. And very effective, actually. Yeah, look, it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, it, look, some people will say, well, it hasn't stopped spam coming into my inbox. True. Um, but the, the thinking at the time, there were, there were a lot of jurisdictions that were thinking about similar legislation. Um, the US, UK, Ireland's, uh, I think Canada was a, a few years away, but, but there was a conversation that was occurring at the time through various international fora and so we were very mindful of being consistent with that mm -hmm. approach we we're also very con uh, mindful that we didn't want to stop legitimate digital marketing practices from occurring and so we really focused in on on kind of look the, the, the sort of the basis of the legislation is really around consent and around the ability to opt out of of that form of communication electronic communications um Consent, and and we also one of the real one of the reasons we drafted separate legislation from the Privacy Act is the Privacy Act. There's a um, an active consent yeah. process. We acknowledge that if you hand over someone's you know give someone your business card that has your email address, there's almost an implied consent that you should you know that they can communicate to you with that email um, or with that phone number. Similarly, if you put your email address or your phone number out on the internet to the world again, there's kind of an implied consent that operates there that, that people can contact you via that mechanism. Yeah. So we didn't want to stop that from happening, but we also wanted to make sure that if someone was being contacted and they didn't want that communication, that they could opt out of it. The other thing um, with that legislation, it went through a good sort of 12, 18 months sort of consultation process. There was a lot of thinking that went into it. Um, not all stakeholders were happy. I, I remember having some difficult conversations with the, the uh, Direct Marketing Associational. I think it was the Direct Marketing Association, ADMA. <laughs> uh, um, but the, the other interesting thing that came about it, because it was consistent with global frameworks, because there was also a, um, a range of infrastructure that had to be put in place by the Australian Communications and Media Authority. I think actually at that stage it was still ACA, the Australian yeah. Communications Authority, which is showing my, my age. Um, but the infrastructure that ACMA had to establish to sort of track complaints to track the spam actually became a very powerful tool in sort of uh, being able to track scams, being able to track phishing, that information is being used by the Australian Cyber Security Centre. So it created a range of infrastructure that actually has stood the test of time yep. uh, as well as the legislation itself. 
if I want to go conversely and pick a sledgehammer, and in some respects you go, actually, it's a very specific issue, but the approach was was a pretty blunt instrument. <laughs> I, I, really... I, I have a bet with myself about what you're going to say uh, next. Uh, how about you? Uh, how about you guess? Uh, I'm going to guess <laughs> it's either the uh, encryption uh, access and assistance legislation or the misinformation post uh, Christchurch yeah, the borrowed legislation. Materials yes, yes, no, that's, yep. that's the one. That's the one I'm picking. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, I did debate whether to do the assistance and access uh, <laughs> legislation as well, but no, I've, I've picked the uh, AVM laws. In 2019. And the most extraordinary thing about that was that, that it was essentially proposed by government one weekend and was law by the next, yeah. which I, I've never seen, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is... And, 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 it, and that's particularly interesting, right, that you can, you can have through parliament a piece of legislation that imposes considerable burdens upon any industry, any industry, in and, this case, the tech industry. And criminal, criminal sanctions. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, it, and to me, it's also a very firm rebuttal of this idea that um, legislation can't move fast enough to keep up with oh. the industry because well that is very clearly an example but sorry I've interrupted you keep going no, no it was it was uh it was funny I, I remember um at the time actually you know I was still working for Microsoft when, when that occurred but um we, we were sort of jokingly sort of talking about this concept of of uh minimal viable legislation or minimal viable regulation yep. that could move fairly fairly quickly and and uh, Brad Smith was actually in Australia not long before that that legislation was proposed so it was sort of like well here it is and look I don't think anyone in the industry is going to argue that what happened with the live streaming of the Christchurch massacre wasn't terrible uh, and wasn't something that the industry could do better. You know, I think there was a good acknowledgement from the industry that, you know, we wanted to find mechanisms to stop that from occurring or if if it did occur that you could shut it down pretty, pretty quickly. But, you know, the response was so quick (laughs) and and so broad reaching with with no consultation at all. I think, and we talked about the Assistance and Access Act I think the fact that it followed that debate fairly mm. quickly, mm. It, it, it had a pretty big impact on the trust from other you know, countries and other um, particularly large multinationals in the Australian environment. I, th- I think that Australia had been seen as a very sensible regulatory environment. You had mm. two proposals fairly quickly that were largely opposed by industry or fairly heavily opposed by industry, it, it really shook that confidence. Mm. So. And can you talk about the impact of that the lack of confidence or the lack of trust and how that because it's all well and good for for industry representatives to say you know we need to be consulted and and pushing legislation through is bad the the cynical person listening to that will say well that's just because you don't want to have have regulatory burdens but can you speak a little bit more or respond to that argument and speak a little bit more broadly about the impact that that lack of trust or or the environment um uh, creates so I'll probably come back to the Assistance and Access Act around mm. that because that was a power that required forced companies to provide technical assistance to law enforcement in Australia. And because you have a global system in operation and Atlassian is an Australian company, other multinationals have operations here in Australia that support other countries' data, mm. you, you have this very rich environment where it doesn't matter if it's true or not, People are raising questions about what that power enables Australian law enforcement to do and national security agencies Mm. to do. And if there's secrecy provisions, it's like it's really, really hard to argue against that scuttlebutt. Mm. So if they say, oh, look, you would have, you know, ASIO has forced you to build a backdoor into your products. And it's like, well, no, they haven't. Yeah. So, well, how can you prove that? Yeah. There's a secrecy provision in the law. It's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just challenging. And look, I, I think in some respects... 
I understand the challenges that law enforcement has with with the growth in encryption. Um, I understand the challenges that creates for um, investi- investigations. Um, and, and look, it's not a it's not a simple issue. I think the whole encryption debate is something that 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 needs to be had, and it needs to be a fairly open conversation between government and, and industry. Mm-hmm. I, I think when you're introducing those powers, and I think one of the concerns that that the industry had was the lack of checks and balances on the use of those powers. Because they weren't a warrant, there wasn't necessarily an independent authorization process. So I I think generally when we see laws and powers like that, we want to see those independent processes, those independent reviews, those independent judicial, you know, where appropriate authorizations that can be challenged. Um, Because you're dealing with very technical matters. The government did add a few measures at the end in terms of, you know, creating a panel of an ex-judicio and uh, a technical advisor to be able to advise government on the technical um, feasibility of, of, of being able to grant the access that law enforcement, you know, that national security or law enforcement agencies are looking for. But without those independent mechanisms, it just creates an environment where people don't trust the process. So uh, would it be fair to say that what you're effectively saying is the fact that Australia has a power that allows the government to compel um, a tech company to assist them to access encrypted communications and that there isn't um, necessarily judicial oversight. There is there is independent oversight, for example, with the um, Inspector General for Intelligence, but that still is, is a closed yep. process that the existence of that power creates a level of distrust and uncertainty in a business environment. Yeah, I I think government underestimates the power of fear, uncertainty and doubt, so FUD, the acronym. And what you often see if you're, let's say you're a technology company who's headquartered in a jurisdiction that doesn't have those powers, you are highly likely if you're in a bidding war against a company that is in a jurisdiction with those powers Mm. that you will point to those powers and their existence as something that that customer should be aware of. And and it just creates complexity in the discussion. And I think as we were talking about before, where you have secrecy provisions that exist within laws, it, it, it makes it really, really hard to argue the negative. Um, because the, the, the simple argument back to you is like, we, well, even if you did, you wouldn't be able to tell us. And that's why I think that, that even, you know, taking a step back and, and looking at the powers, if you look at when the UK introduced its similar legislation, the Investigative Powers Act, um, and I'm trying to think when that was introduced, 2017, does that sound right? Yeah, it was, bef- it was just a little bit before. So we were 2018, so yeah, yeah probably 2017. Yeah. 16, 17, yeah. sometime yeah. around then. One of the things that, that the industry quite likes about that model was the creation of the IPCO, um, the Investigative Powers uh Commissioner's Office, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you, you mentioned IGES. It, it, brought together a whole range of functions that were both uh, uh, review and authorization and created a centralized place in government that was building technical expertise for the use of those powers because these powers are one they're they're very well they're actually quite difficult for agencies to use because there's a lot of thought that has to go through them so it's actually helpful to have someone who can guide you through that process on the government side of the fence Secondly, it gives industry a degree of certainty that there's one body that it has it can go and engage with and talk through some of the complexities and the use of those powers. Mm. It's one of the things why we've we've been a very strong supporter of the Insulum's review of that act where it talked about creating a version of the IPCO inside of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal here in Australia. Uh, and that that independent sort of authorization mechanism, but also review, but also 
you know, having a degree of technical expertise is super important as we, in, you know, sort of engage more in these sort of more detailed technical powers. And I think that's something that the government should really think through as it looks at the um, the electronic surveillance reforms that it's it's uh, it's working on at the moment. And I think these issues are will. Well, I hope that they become things that uh, both parties put on the table during the election, because I know they're, you know, these are these are hot topics. Labor definitely has a has a proposal around this, and whether or not um, the Liberal Party will also reopen um, and and also including the review you were talking about there. And the reason this is so important is for me this future proofs the yeah. use of technology because. If we have a government that has the ability to compel access, okay, fine, we may. And and the way that this is authorised at the moment is that it's the uh, Attorney General signs off with yep. a double lock check with the Minister of Communications. That's all well and good, perhaps, with our current Attorney General and our current Minister of Communications. I mean, people have different views on that depending on your part of politics. But the point is we also need this legislation also needs to be able to stand the test of time going forward and provide checks and balance for balances for us as a liberal democracy and i think some of these things like independent judicial oversight are really important for us to ensure that this legislation can't be used against us as individuals so putting yep, aside the absolutely. business case yeah. going forward so you've you've spoken quite a lot there about the global implications. Let's let's do a little bit of a, a dive on principle seven, which yep. is the question that you have here is that is this measure mindful of global standards and seeking to en enhance global interoperability? And the principle itself is tech and trust is global. So I think it's fair to say that it certainly seems like every country in the world is rushing to regulate technology at the moment so if you had a magic wand <laughs> um, suspend reality for a moment and yep. you could change one thing about the way that technology regulation is currently being made what would it be oh i'd probably want to get rid of the one-upmanship you know I, th I think a race to be first or best is is probably not a good metric for for the development of policy and regulation you know i, I think a, a much fairer metric would be being good fair globally consistent trusted um, effective effective that's right <laughs> um so I, I think this kind of this there's a worrying trend for me this sort of current game of who can be the toughest on big tech um and i think that is something we need to watch because it can have some unintended consequences particularly for smaller players yeah all right and one other question that i wanted to put to you around this idea around the global interoperability certainly when i when i have looked at these issues i think it's fair to say that both china and australia have been particularly active <laughs> in regulating now yep. obviously we have very different systems of governments yep. very different values but equally this has been a priority for both governments yep. so given that values actually are embedded so much into yeah. the regulation and that goes to the point about why I think reforms to the access and assistance legislation are so important. Do you think it's actually possible to have harmonised global regulations in this space or is it more realistic for us to aim to have um, interoperable uh, regulations with countries that are more like-minded? Yeah, I, I, look, I think it's super hard to find rules that will operate across open and democratic nations and more closed and controlled nations. Um, I mean, look, as soon as the internet sprang out of its sort of academic incubator and became a, a mass market technology um, with the, the, the creation of the World Wide Web in the, in the mid to late 90s, it, it, you saw authoritarian nations trying to use international fora to create 
more control over those systems. And and to its credit, the US uh, with its allies sort of pushed back against that pretty hard. Something um, I have done a little bit of in my own time, yeah. <laughs> so what we're seeing is not necessarily new. It, it sort of has been around since, you know, the, the beginning of the internet. I think what's changed is the effort shifted from international fora to more domestic controls. Yeah. Um, so, you know, rather than, than international governance. So I think your aims have to be pretty realistic. Harmonisation really only achievable across nations with similar perspectives on issues such as privacy, mm. human rights, government access to data. So with that in mind, probably the more concerning thing for me personally is the fracturing of rules between like-minded jurisdictions that we're seeing at the moment. You know, the current stalemate between the US and the EU on what the next version of the privacy shield might look like yeah. um, following the Court of Justice of the EU's ruling on SHREMS too. You know, at the moment we're kind of operating in this, this sort of legal grey zone. There's a lot of data that's you know, that's transiting the Atlantic, including yeah. ours, <laughs> and the rules are, are largely unclear. And I think that's that's incredibly problematic. And it's a really good demonstration, we were talking about trust before, of what can happen when trust erodes between jurisdictions. Mm. And that process really dates back to, to the Snowden leaks yeah. in 2013. That was kind of the beginning of where you started to see European nations really questioning the powers that the US had in mm. terms of access to data. Mm. Um, and that's sort of really, you know, what we're seeing now is sort of the natural conclusion of all of that. Um, and then when you blend in kind of some of the domestic politics, um, domestic economic imperatives around data localization, you, you know, you start to create an incredibly complex brew that, that's really, really hard to untangle. And so, um, you know, I, I think that for me is, is really concerning. I think if you see Europe has increasing suspicion of US and its allies sort of traditional information sharing arrangements, the five eyes. And, in, and that sort of, you know, if you add the Cloud Act agreements that are being, uh, that have been finalised between the UK and the US and now Australia and the US are finalising their agreement, I think that just feeds into that, mm. that, that mix. Mm. It's one of the reasons why I'm a really big supporter of what the OECD's kicked off under its Committee, of, of digital, uh, committee on a Digital Economy Policy to establish principles for government access to data. Yeah. Because then you've got, you know, a good grouping of large economic, comparatively familiar nations. And, and I think that's a really important process to re-establish trust in the global digital economy. Yeah. And I think it's also really important for people as they're embarking on this to, often we talk about um, privacy and surveillance as if they are two separate, separate yeah, issues. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, the, the discussion between the EU and the US mm. um, around privacy, of course, has been triggered by concerns about uh, US intelligence agencies access totally. to data throw it flowing across the Atlantic. So um, I think that's a that's a really uh, important point. And it's 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 a it's a good demonstration of when, you know, two jurisdictions are talking across each other. Yeah. Was the because the Europeans have been pretty consistent in talking about access and law enforcement and surveillance yeah. and you know, the, from the US perspective, it's just a privacy issue. So they're kind of like, well, they're just sort of talking across each other. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think the gov- I don't think the US has any great desire to engage in in broad legislative reform around mm. surveillance. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure the European Union will accept anything other than that. Mm. And I think this is particularly important in an environment where we have countries like uh, China, but also increasingly Russia, 
exporting a model of the internet that is increasingly yeah. authoritarian, increasingly allowing for control. And if we as a like-minded group of countries are splintering within ourselves, yep. um, that has real implications, not only for the quality of the products that our companies are providing, but also geopolitically in terms of the balance of power. So I won't, we won't delve into that because we don't have a glass of wine, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but we will be doing a future podcast episode looking at many of those geopolitical yep. um, dynamics. So we're coming towards the end of our time. One of the things that I'm very conscious of at the moment is that particularly in Australia with summer holidays that have been filled with rain and Omicron <laughs> lockdowns, yep. we want to try and inject a bit of hope for people. So are there any tech policy trends that you are seeing at the moment that you are actually optimistic about that you, yep. you know, it's easy to criticise? What What's actually going well at the moment? I think there's a global push to really raise the, the baselines on cybersecurity, and I think that's super important, particularly mm. for non-technology industries. Um, I think as digital technologies become pervasive across the economy, the, the, the attack vector has, has grown. And so I think it's really, really important to ensure there's um, the right sort of focus on those issues that companies that are operating critical infrastructure that are, you know, supporting our transport, our banking, our healthcare, education, bringing their their, their cybersecurity standards up to a baseline that, that just protects us all. And I think that's that's a super important development and one, one you know, I really support. And I think the industry does. That, you know, the good operators that have invested in good security, I think, are also very supportive of that. Yeah. Right. Awesome. That's the first time I've heard cybersecurity used in a sentence involving hope. So that's great. <laughs> so the other thing I thought I'd take the advantage is because you have been working in this field in Australia for such a long time. And um, I say that looking at you as a very young man oh, across sitting across from me. It's very kind. Um, can you give some advice or perhaps share some wisdom um, with our listeners about, you know, getting involved in this field and and share perhaps help us avoid some of your mistakes? perhaps? Oh, look, I'm probably the worst person to ask for advice. <laughs> because my career's been largely a series of fortunate events. I've sort of fallen into things. So I can probably only really talk about the journey that I've been on and the things that I've sort of picked up along the way. Yeah. Probably the best way to describe it. So I started life as a technology journalist. That's how I fell into oh, I technology. Didn't know that. Yeah, I, I left university, uh, had no idea what I was going to do, was applying for journalism jobs. And I had a mate that was doing, uh, was writing for a, for a technology uh, monthly magazine. It's now dead. All the magazines I worked on are also defunct. <laughs> Someone should uh, talk to the tech industry exactly. about that. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that I took away from that was one, gave me the luxury to meet lots of people across the industry, mm. to, to learn about technology. I, I had a really good editor who was very good at teaching just the fundamentals of how things operated. I was not a technologist at the time and a basic understanding, but he was able to sort of, you know, you know, take me into a room and get up on the whiteboard and just show me how, how a telecommunications network actually, you know, transits data, like wow. as, an, as an example. So People who are able to do that are so valuable. Oh, totally. We need more of them in our lives. Totally. So that was good and also gave me uh, an understanding of the media, its engagement with issues, its motivations and drivers, which I think is an often missed important part of policy development processes, mm. how the media engages with those issues. So the only thing I can really impart from that is is ask lots of questions of people with experience and listen intently. My time in government was invaluable. I, I don't think you can really engage fully in the policy process unless you've seen how the sausage is made. It's and not pretty, but it's, it's not, important it's to know. Not, yep. It's not pretty. And it's not linear. It's not neat. It's not consistent. So, you know, if you've done a university course, uh, you know, in politics or public policy development, you, you'll 
maybe come away with from that with a very hypothetical view of how policy <laughs> is made, which isn't often consistent with the reality. And I don't think you've really done uh, stakeholder management until you've had a stakeholder on the you know the end of a phone yelling at you is very unhappy with what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Not that anyone should go through that, but you know it does give you a, a different sense of stakeholder management that isn't as hypothetical. Um, so I, I think if you want to engage in the policy pres- process effectively, you need to have seen it from the inside. I, you know, I can't stress that more. And finally, look, working across industry for the last 14 odd years has taught me that industry isn't a homogenous group of stakeholders. And I think sometimes there's a desire from government to want to treat industry like that. We're going to consult with industry in brackets, yeah. <laughs> everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think the policy processes need to understand the individual motivations and interests of all the participants and in many respects, you actually learn more from engaging with the outliers than you do with the consensus, even if you disagree with it. So I, I find exclusive or non-inclusive policy processes are really the ones that seek to tick the industry engagement box rather than really delve into it deeply. Yeah. And I think I, I couldn't agree with you more about um, building those relationships because it's amazing to me how many relationships that you make very early on in your career that then um, you're oh, still using. Around. Yeah, exactly. It's extraordinary. All right. Well, the last question that we finish on is any books or recommendations that you have for, for people who are new to this field, um, who, you know, it could be electronic or non-electronic, whatever your fancy is, podcasts, etc. So um, what are your recommendations? Uh, so from podcasts, I think The Vergecast and some of its spinoffs are really, oh, yeah. really good to listen to because they do span that gamut of, of talking about like new technology products and, yeah. and you know, and, and you know technical details but also covering emerging policy trends and, and regulation. I've just discovered Richard Allen's Regulate Tech podcast as well, which is, which oh, is really good. Okay, I haven't heard of that um, one. No, either, either I. I have to actually thank my colleague Anna Chaffee for suggesting that one. Really fascinating set of insights. Um, Richard has been a British parliamentarian. He's worked in government relations for both Cisco and Facebook. He's a fellow at Oxford, but he's also built IT systems at the NHS. So he's oh, fascinating. Yeah. interesting person and, and really unique perspective. For books, I'd go back and read Tim Berners-Lee's Weaving the Web. Mm. Um, I think it's really, really important to understand the history of, of the technology that we sort of take for granted. And it's kind of founding principles. I haven't read it for for years, but it and it probably reads incredibly idealistic now. But but I think it's really really good I to think understand we need the some idealism. Yeah, we in do our need lives. some idealism. So <laughs> so that's great, and it's just a great story as yeah. well, um, yeah. and 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 it's worth worth reading. Uh, in terms of Twitter, look, I, I you know think about following some of the US tech watchers. Yeah. Always interesting. Kara Swisher, Ben Thompson, Nikolai Patel, some of the Australian journos. I don't know you've had Still Gary in on, on yes, this, this yep. podcast. Still, uh, James Riley in Innovation Oz, Ben Grubb, there's a couple of others yep. that, that, that sort of tweet about those issues. Uh, and some of the key local bodies that are engaged in the process, like ASPE, the Site Policy Centre there, the Tech Council Australia, which we're, we're a found foundation member of, and, and of course, the, uh, the Tech Policy Design Centre. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much, David, for, for giving us your time, but also for generously engaging with the Tech Policy Design Centre as we're in this establishment stage. It really is wonderful to have your support. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for building the centre. It's incredibly important. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the ANU Tech Policy Design Centre. This episode was produced by Anna Davies. Tanvi Nair and Amy Denmink provided invaluable research support. Ben Gowdy provided support that only an avid podcast listener can provide. Thank you, our listeners, for listening, and please do leave us a review.